Canby New Life Foursquare Church welcomes you. We're located at 2350 Southeast Territorial Road, just off Highway 99E. We hope the following message will be a blessing to you. That's the third time I've seen that. Still not easy to get over that, you know. <clears throat> you think I've got an easy job? Well, that's what I have to work with, you know. <clears throat> By the way, number one, he does not edit my sermons. Number two, we're not in Acts chapter 6, we're in Acts chapter 5. Uh, uh, we were supposed to be there, but I just, uh, the Lord just wouldn't let me go further. Uh, to get out of chapter 5, I think there's some important things that uh, we need to hear, and I think the Holy Spirit wants to say to each one of us. And so, all I know to do right now is just pray after that, so <clears throat> let's do that, let's pray. Lord, we do thank you for our time of worship and our fellowship, and now, Lord, as we open your word, we pray that your Holy Spirit would open our ears and our hearts that this good seed of the word would take root in our lives and bear good fruit. So, Holy Spirit, speak to us now, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we are continuing our, <clears throat> our series entitled The Touchable Jesus, Touchable Church. And <clears throat> I'd like to begin by reading from John 14, 8 through 9. Philip said to Jesus, Lord, show us the Father and it is sufficient for us. Jesus said to him, have I been with you so long and yet... You have not known me, Philip? He who has seen me has seen the Father. And then in Colossians 1.15 and 2 verse 9, Paul writes, Jesus Christ is the visible image of the invisible God. For in Christ lives all the fullness of God in a human body. These passages tell us that Jesus was and is the real deal. He was God in human flesh. Imagine this, the almighty God, the infinite, all-powerful creator of the universe, who saw fit to humble himself, come down to our level, live in flesh and blood among us, so we could understand who God is and what he's like. In Jesus Christ, God became touchable. In his ministry, Jesus demonstrated for us and showed us that God is loving and merciful and kind. He values people regardless of who they are. He valued those and touched those who were lepers. He spent time with tax collectors, the rich, even the religious rulers who persecuted him. The untouchables of society, the harlots, publicans, sinners. Jesus was touchable. He was available it's a remarkable thing that God, the infinite God, would limit himself to a finite body. And not only that, he would allow us to handle him. He was betrayed, arrested, scourged, and crucified by the ones he created. Hard to comprehend that. And then he demonstrated that God is righteous and holy. He's truthful and just and ready to forgive through his death on the cross Jesus took it a step further. He became sin for us so that we could become the righteousness of God in Him. You have to ask yourself, well, why would God do such a thing? What would be His motivation for going through all of that? 
I think John chapter 3, verse 16 says it all. It says, God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. God came to us on a level we could understand and He became touchable simply because He loves us. That's why He went through all that. As Christians, we've been given the privilege and responsibility of continuing his legacy, following the example Jesus gave us. But the question we need to consider today is, do we really understand what God requires of us to be the touchable church, to be the body of Christ? In chapter 5 of the book of Acts, the early church got a crash course in what it means to be the body of Christ. And what it really means to reveal who God is and what He is like to our generation. There were two lessons that God impressed upon them very early on that they needed to learn. And I'm convinced that these are two lessons that we still need to learn today in the 21st century. And so I've entitled this message, When Church Gets Real. When Church gets real. The first lesson the first century church had to learn came right after the death of Ananias and Sapphira. If you're here, you were here last weekend, you may remember Pastor Ron mentioned that amazing and really a shocking story in Acts chapter 5 where Ananias and Sapphira, this husband and wife, part of the church, the Christian church, um, they decided to sell a piece of property and bring the proceeds of the sale to Peter to help out the widows, the orphans, the people in the church who didn't really have very much. Again, the church was growing by hundreds and thousands, and there were many people who were really struggling to survive. So people would sell whatever they had, and they would give it to the common purse, and whoever had need, they would distribute it. So Ananias and Sapphira said, you know, we want to be a part of that too. We want to be givers and support the work of the ministry and helping those in need. So they sold some property and they brought the proceeds of the sale, or at least they pretended to. The fact was they only bought, brought a portion of it and kept a little bit back for themselves, probably to make sure that they would have enough. So the problem wasn't that they sold the land or that they gave only a part. The problem was... They lied about what they gave. Through a word of knowledge, when they gave this gift, Peter said this to Ananias. He said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and keep back part of the price of the land for yourself? While it remained, was it not, was it not your own? And after it was sold, was it not in your own control? Why have you conceived this thing in your heart? You've not lied to men, but to God. Then Ananias, hearing these words, fell down and breathed his last. So great fear came upon all those who heard these things. Three hours later, his wife shows up. Peter asked, me, asked her this question. She said, he says, tell me whether you sold the land for so much. She said, yes, for so much. Then Peter said to her, how is it that you've agreed together to test the spirit of the Lord? Look, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door and they will carry you out. Then immediately she fell down at his feet and breathed her last. And the young men came in and found her dead and carrying her out, buried her by her husband. 
So great fear came upon all the church and upon all who heard these things. And through the hands of the apostles, many signs and wonders were done among the people. And they were all with one accord in Solomon's porch. Yet none of the rest dared join them. But the people esteemed them highly. seems that Ananias and Sapphira thought they could have it both ways. They thought they could maintain an outward appearance of being spiritual, but live with a secret sin at the same time. Apparently they saw no problem with this double life. And yet God sent a very clear and a rather shocking message to the early church that if they were going to be called Christian, their lifestyle had to be consistent with the integrity holiness, and godly character of Jesus Christ. If we're honest about it, I think one of the biggest problems the church has suffered through the last 2,000 years is the charge by the unbelieving world that the church is full of hypocrites. Unfortunately, this is a reputation that, to a certain extent, is probably earned. There have been examples of those past and present who were living a double life. They would uh, maintain a profession of faith, and yet they would also have a secret sin. And once that became publicly exposed, people looked at that. And the fact is, when, whether you're a Christian or not, there's something that causes a person to rise up with righteous indignation when they see a Christian going to church on Sunday, but the rest of the week their language, their lifestyle, business practices, and personal choices are as bad or worse than someone who doesn't claim to know Jesus Christ. Now, I know that some of those who think that all Christians are hypocrites often use this blanket statement as an excuse to justify their own sin. I mean, it's really convenient, isn't it? Well, they're all hypocrites. They all sin. So I guess my sin, I don't have to worry about it. So I'm off the hook because look how bad they are. What's closer to the truth is that they've observed a few Christians or those who claim to be who fit that description. And because of that example or their witness, that unbelieving person decided, you know, I don't want to have anything to do with church, God, or Jesus. And I think it's precisely for this reason that God sent a message loud and clear to the early church right after it was born. I mean, this happened. This thing with Ananias and Sapphira, it happened within weeks or months after the day of Pentecost and the church was born. And this was a real wake-up call. This was a shocking development. And so God sent a clear message to the church that it was a tragedy of eternal proportions for an unbeliever to end up in hell because they were turned away from faith in Jesus Christ by the example of those who claimed to know Him. That brings up a question. As you read this story, the question that comes up is this. Can you imagine what the next church service was like in Jerusalem after Ananias and Sapphira fell over dead? <clears throat> I mean, stop and think about it. <laughs> All right, these two people, I mean, they just walked in. They gave a gift. It was really a generous thing to do. I mean, their heart seemed to be kind of in the right place. But, I mean, Peter just asked them a question. He just asked them a simple question. They both died. So now, what are you thinking about showing up for church next week? Uh, I think there were two reactions that people had. 
after this news got circulated throughout the community. The first reaction was one of deep conviction and fear as people realized that what had happened to Ananias and Sapphira could just as easily have happened to them. I know what I would have done. I think I would run home really quick, get along with God, and confess everything I could think of and repent right there on the spot. Because here, I wouldn't want to meet Peter on the street and have him ask me one question and not have time to answer. I mean, that would not be good. So you'd really want to get serious because there was a healthy fear of God that had now taken residence in your heart. And God God was saying something here. He was making a statement and people were catching on. There was a second reaction I think some people had, and that was to keep a healthy distance from Peter. Yeah, I mean, you want to kind of be on the other side of town because, you know, you knew you weren't living a holy life or maybe you missed something in prayer. That wouldn't be good either. And so you you just didn't want your life to be exposed, your, your sins. So... I think that was one of two reactions people had. In fact, Luke writes this. He actually records how people reacted and responded. It says, Great fear came upon all the church and upon all who heard these things. And none of the rest dared join them, that is, the apostles. But the people esteemed them highly. So what was the first lesson that they had to learn? This early church needed to learn something right up front. And it's summed up by Peter, interestingly enough, many years later in his first epistle. In 1 Peter 1, 15 through 16, uh, Peter writes these words, As he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct, because it is written, Be holy, for I am holy. Now, I need to say a few things before I go any further in this message. Um, the first thing that I need to make real clear up front is that I'm preaching as much to myself as to any one of you here. You know, if there are two messages a person can preach that applies to everybody who's willing to be honest, is you can ask people, number one, how's your prayer life? And the other is, are you living a holy life? I think, can we all agree right here and now that we could all improve in those two areas? You know, we could probably get better there. So this, this is not a word or a message of condemnation this morning. What I'm hoping and praying that you hear is a word, a strong word of exhortation. Because we are living in a time, in a day, in an hour, where we in the 21st century church need to learn this lesson, that God has called us to live a holy life. So let's be honest. I mean, we all have a ways to go before our thoughts and our words and our deeds accurately reflect and glorify Jesus Christ in every respect. So we're all on a process. So this is not a message of condemnation, but an urgent appeal from God who doesn't want anyone to perish or to be turned away from Jesus because of those who are witnesses and examples of that relationship we have with Him. He wants everyone to be saved and to receive this gift of eternal life. The other thing I want to make sure we understand is that in our lifetime, we will never, <clears throat> we will never attain to sinless perfection. In 1 John chapter 1, verse 8 and verse 10, John writes that if anyone claims 
They have no sin or they have never sinned. He is a liar and the truth isn't in him. Okay, so we're all in a process of becoming more like Jesus. That's at least God's plan. But he asks for our participation and our partnership in that call to holy living. This is the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. And I need to say this also is that this upward call of living a holy life and being a witness that glorifies and honors Jesus is becoming increasingly difficult in our day and age. Because sin has never been more available, more tempting, or easier to indulge in. To compound the problem, we are living in a postmodern world where the current philosophy of life out there is there is no such thing as right and wrong and morally acceptable and unacceptable behavior. Uh, it's not even a question we need to ask anymore. It's all relative. Whatever is good for you is, the, is truth for you. So the idea of What's holy and what isn't? Being holy isn't politically correct. So if you are going to be a witness for Christ, if you are going to allow uh, the Holy Spirit, He is holy, by the way, if He is going to perfect holiness in your life, you're living in a hostile environment for that to happen. There are profound, powerful, spiritual tidal forces that are urging all of us just to join in and go with the flow. Don't stand out. Just fit in, blend in. But the words of God found in 2 Corinthians 6, 17 through 18 are as relevant for us today as when they were written. In this day, the Holy Spirit is saying to every Christian, therefore come out from among them and be separate, says the Lord. Touch no unclean thing and I will receive you. I will be a father to you and you will be my sons and daughters, says the Lord Almighty. I think it's easy for us to be deceived into thinking that we can sin and won't get caught or that our sin really isn't that bad. I suspect Ananias and Sapphira kind of thought that. I mean, they, they probably had it kind of worked out in their mind something like this. Well, we're giving a very generous gift over here. And this is a good thing to do. And yes, we're not giving the whole thing and we're not really being honest about the gift. And so our lie is over here. But the good far outweighs the bad. So it's kind of okay. God made a very clear statement. He says, sin is sin. It's not okay. And they were judged for their sin. It says in Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death. And God chose to pay them the wage that day. Now, um, the implication of that is this. The only reason that I am alive today, the only reason you are alive today, is because God has chosen by His mercy not to pay you and me the same wage the first time we sinned. 
I ask my students this when I teach the book of Acts. I said, have you ever sinned worse than lying? And, you know, they all say, sure. How many times have you sinned? Well, lots of them. I mean, you could count them up over your lifetime, probably thousands, you know. So how come you're still alive if the wages of sin is death? Because God in his mercy chose not to pay you the wage. That's the only reason you're breathing. Because was God absolutely righteous and just according to his word to judge Ananias and Sapphira that way? Absolutely just. He wasn't being unfair. So when God was saying sin is sin and holiness is holiness, he wasn't kidding. He's saying this is the way it is. I, listen, I think I've spent all week, I spent weeks. I mean, before I can talk to you about this, God has to work it through me and I'm still processing this along with you. Um, so, I, I mean, we all have some room to grow here. But, I mean, I've tried to ask the question, so where did we get this idea that, you know, there's black and white and then there's some gray here? You know, that maybe a little bit of sin, you know, God says, oh, that's okay, no big deal. I think I know where it comes from. How many of you here know what the speed limit is on Interstate 205? (laughs) Why are you laughing? (laughs) What's the speed limit on Interstate 205? You're heading north toward the airport. What is it? 55. Okay, I challenge you to drive on Interstate 205 and see if anybody's doing 55. Truth is, if you go out there, in fact, if you look at your speedometer, it's 63. Because you probably know that anything, eh, a little short of 65, the police aren't going to pull you over because, hey, it's kind of okay. I mean, you're not being reckless. But then you notice that when some guy blazes by you at 75, you get all ticked off and think, oh, that guy's speeding. Hello? What are you doing? You see, we don't get pulled over at 63 even though the speed limit sign says 55. We think it's a suggestion. It's not a speed limit. It's a speed suggestion. I mean, it's kind of okay. I mean, you know, 63, you're in the gray zone there. Listen, it isn't that way. Sin isn't a gray thing. It's black and white. It's in the Word. So God was serious about the importance of holy living and being a godly witness. In fact, God in the Bible... He calls certain behavior sin without apology. He lists them. And the reason he does this is because sin is a deadly spiritual cancer that progressively destroys us and other people. What are some of them? Things like lying, sexual immorality, stealing, adultery, homosexuality, greed, idolatry, gluttony, drunkenness, gossip, profanity. These are just a few things God has said should have no place in our lives. This is why God is calling the church in this last day to do this, to cleanse ourselves from all filthiness of the flesh and spirit, perfecting what? Holiness in the fear of God. For God did not call us to be impure, but to live a holy life. Holiness was the first lesson this church needed to learn. I need to kind of take a moment and share with you, this isn't the first time God sent that message. If you think about the first covenant community, the covenant community of Israel, God sent the message to them as well. The first time was after the uh, Israelites under Moses' leadership left Egypt. God led them to Mount Sinai, gave them the Ten Commandments. One of them was, do no work on the Sabbath. One of the guys in the congregation said, I decided to go out and pick up some firewood on the Sabbath. They saw him doing it and they brought the guy to Moses and said, this guy is gathering sticks on the Sabbath. What should we do with him? So Moses asked God, what should we do? God said, take him out and stone him. For gathering firewood? Yep. 
When the leadership changed and Joshua took over, they crossed the Jordan River. The first city that they conquered was Jericho. Here was the law. The rule was everything in Jericho is dedicated to the Lord. Nobody can take any of the spoils of war. A guy named Achan decided, hmm, little gold and silver, a Babylonian garment, I think that'll work. So he took that, buried it in his tent. Family knew about it. They went to the next battle at Ai. They lost. And Joshua says, God, I thought we were supposed to win every battle. God says, you are. The reason you lost is their sin in the camp. So they drew lots, found out it was Achan. Achan, what did you do? Well, I coveted the gold and silver and I have it in my tent. So they t- what they did, they took him out. God, they asked God, what should we do with him? Take him out and stone him, along with his family. They were part of the, they were part of the sin. So in the first covenant community, God is making a statement. He says, look, Israel, you are to be my witness to the other nations. The the whole world is to get to know me by the way I bless you. But I cannot bless you if you're going to live an unholy witness. In the new covenant community of the church, God's sending them the same message. And man, what a wake-up call. That was a shocking development. And it's very interesting to me is that as they learned that lesson, great power was demonstrated through the apostles. There was a second lesson that came a few days after that. The second lesson is found in Acts 5, verse 12 through 14 and 16 in the passage that follows. It says, And through the hands of the apostles many signs and wonders were done among the people, and believers were increasingly added to the Lord. Multitudes of both men and women, so that they brought the sick out into the streets, and laid them on beds and couches that at least the shadow of Peter passing by might fall on some of them. And a multitude gathered from the surrounding cities to Jerusalem, bringing sick people and those who were tormented by unclean spirits, and they were all healed. <clears throat> I think there was a connection. I, was there, I think there was a connection between the church getting the idea that God was serious about sin and holy living They were walking in the fear of God, and as a result, the Holy Spirit could work through the apostles in these incredible ways. This is an amazing thing. People were healed. Demons are cast out. This is a revival. But every move of God comes with a price. And this was part of the second lesson the church needed to learn. In Acts 5, 17 through 18, it says this, Then the high priest rose up and all those who were with him, which is the sect of the Sadducees, and they were filled with indignation and laid their hands on the apostles and put them in the common prison. Oh, this is great. We're serving God. We're living a holy life. And what are they? What's our thanks for that? We get thrown in jail. Yep. There is a cool part to this story. You should read it. They're in prison. The apostles angel of the Lord appears in the prison at night, says, guys, no problem. The angel opens the prison door, walks them by the guard, and the angel says, go preach in the temple. Just keep doing what you're doing. The guards were blinded. They never, ate, they never saw him leave. Next morning, they went to look for him and said, where are they? We were standing here all, all night guarding them, and uh, they're not here. Oh, they're in the temple preaching. They went and arrested them, brought them to the council to stand trial. And so the high priest began his interrogation by saying, Did we not strictly command you not to teach in his name? And look, you filled Jerusalem with your doctrine and intend to bring this man's blood on us. But Peter and the other apostles answered and said, We ought to obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised up Jesus, whom you murdered by hanging on a tree. 
Him God has exalted to His right hand to be Prince and Savior, to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are His witnesses to these things. And so also is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey Him. Well, there's the gospel in 15 seconds. Let's see. Crucified, risen Savior, forgiveness of sins, repentance, the gift of the Holy Spirit. He got that all in. I think he had to do it quick because he knew it was coming. Once you say that God only gives the Holy Spirit to those who obey him, he knew this is not going to go over well. And sure enough, when they heard this, they were furious and plotted to kill them. This is going from bad to worse. Then one in the council stood up, fortunately, a Pharisee named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law, held in respect by all the people and commanded them to, be, to put the uh, apostles outside for a little while. And he said to the men of Israel, take heed to yourselves what you intend to do regarding these men. For some time ago, Thutis rose up claiming to be somebody. A number of men, about 400, joined him. He was slain and all who obeyed him were scattered and came to nothing. After this man, Judas of Galilee, rose up in the days of the census and drew away many people after him. He also perished, and all who obeyed him were dispersed. And now I say to you, keep away from these men. Let them alone, for if this plan or this work is of man, it will come to nothing. But if it is of God, you cannot overthrow it, lest you even be found to fight against God. Good wisdom, but it still didn't keep them from what happens next. And they agreed with him. And when they had called for the apostles and beaten them... They commanded that they should not speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. So they departed from the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer shame for his name. And daily in the temple and in every house, they did not cease teaching and preaching Jesus as the Christ. Well, this has got to be a rude wake-up call too. I mean, here we are, serving God, living for God, and what do we get for it? Imprisonment and beatings. The second lesson the early church Christians had to learn is that being a disciple of Jesus Christ will be costly. In Luke 14, 26 to 33, Jesus said, If anyone comes to me but loves his father, mother, wife, children, brothers or sisters, or even life more than me, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever is not willing to carry his cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. And whoever of you does not forsake all that he has cannot be my disciple. Jesus is talking about a total commitment here. It's a 100% deal. We're giving our life to him. He also said this, Remember the word that I said to you, A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. These things I've spoken to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation. But be of good cheer, I've overcome the world. These apostles discovered that these prophetic words of Jesus were literally fulfilled in their lifetime. They experienced tribulation. And they learned real soon that being a disciple, following in the footsteps of Jesus, that's what disciple means. It means a follower, that if you're following Jesus, his footsteps lead to a cross. And they were following in his pattern. So they left the council with their backs bleeding, rejoicing that they had been counted worthy to suffer shame for his name. 
I imagine they probably remembered this passage in John 15:19, where Jesus said, If you were of the world, the world would love its own. Yet because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. So in the first century, these early Christians who were excited, they had met God in the flesh. They'd handled the Lord. They'd touched Him. They'd seen Him. They'd watched His miracles. They saw Him ascend into heaven. I mean, this was a spiritual high. And then they're preaching and God is confirming the word with signs following and there's a revival. And then God says, guys, there's a couple things you need to make sure to learn. Being the church means that we're serious about holiness. Because God is very jealous for His name and His reputation. The last thing He wants is for somebody to be turned away from Jesus because of our example or witness that doesn't honor Him. Church also learned that this was very costly. And I suspect that we are going to be learning that lesson in the not-too-distant future. In the 21st century, God hasn't changed His mind or His reasons for asking us to pursue a holy life. I know we don't maybe talk enough about holiness and what that really means or why it's so important. But it's critical. I I do need to say something about this holiness and the pursuit of holiness. Is this is not... A goal, this is not a pursuit that any of us will ever be able to achieve in our own strength, by our own will and determination. Ever try it? Oh God, I'm going to live holy. I'm not going to sin today. And by noon, you're confessing and repenting. Because you realize in your own strength, you just don't have the will and the determination to accomplish what you desire to do. And there's a reason. If you could, who would get the praise? You would. But God has made this thing in such a way that you can't be saved in your own strength. And you can't be sanctified or made holy by your own will and effort alone. But listen, holiness is a partnership. God cannot make you holy without your willful participation. It requires us to say, Lord, take my life as a vessel. Cleanse me. Purify me. That I can be salt and light. That the light isn't hid under a bushel. That the salt hasn't lost its savor. Lord, help me to be that witness, that holy example. So that other people, when they see me, they encounter you. They can touch Jesus through your life. They can experience the fragrance of Christ in your life. The early church also discovered that being a Christian was costly. Because you aren't of this world. The light and the witness of the Holy Spirit through your life will bring conviction to those who reject Christ. So we really shouldn't be surprised if this happens, that people are upset with you or angry or try to get you to act in a sinful way so that they're not so bothered by your witness anymore. The religious leaders tried to put out the light. They tried to extinguish and suppress the witness. But as you continue reading through the book of Acts, you want to pay attention to something. Every time they try to stomp out the fire, the sparks get scattered everywhere, the commitment grows deeper, and the gospel is spread throughout the Roman Empire within 30 years. 
This was an amazing time because people understood these two simple lessons. As Christians living in the 21st century, we need to learn these same lessons. And we're living in a time where it is very, very difficult, especially for American Christians to be willing to learn these lessons. We're living in the last days. And Jesus told us up front, he said, in the last days, this is what life will be like on earth. It'll be like it was in the days of Noah and Lot. Okay, so what were those days like? In the days of Noah, the thoughts of men's hearts was only evil continually. The earth was filled with violence and the earth was polluted and corrupt. Any of that sound familiar? It would be like it was in the days of Lot. What was it like in Sodom? Moral depravity to the extreme. People were reprobate. They had no consciousness of good or evil. It was, it was all turned upside down. So how is it going to be to be a Christian or to be a believer in God like Noah or Lot in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation? It's going to be a tough assignment. It's going to be costly if you're willing to stand up and stand out for Jesus. So this means we have to say, Jesus, I commit, I consecrate my life to you as a holy sacrifice. Lord, purify my heart. Cleanse me. Use me. I enthrone you as King Jesus. We've been singing, singing those songs that he is a holy God. As you look around the world, what does it look like today? The world economies... The world governments are increasingly fragile, unstable. And, and anybody, Christian or not, who's looking at the, the, the circumstances in which we are living, you have to have the sense that life as we know it today probably won't be able to continue for very much longer before everything collapses under its own weight. And when the lights go out, what happens in a city? Anarchy and sin, and it, it just comes boiling over. So for us to be a holy witness, it's going, we're going back to a first century church model. It's coming, guys. And the Holy Spirit is saying to us in this last day, now is the time to decide and purpose with God's power and strength to live a holy life and to count the cost. It may cost you everything. But in those days, I think we will remember the words of Jesus. He who seeks to save his life will lose it. But he who is willing to lose his life for my sake and the gospels will find it. So the application for us this morning, for you, and please note for me, we're all learners. We're all members of the same family. We all are learning the same lessons. Is the time has come for the church to get real. It's time to lay aside the sins which so easily beset us to live a holy life with God's help. It's also time to be sold out for Jesus and keep our eyes fixed upon Him as the author and finisher of our faith. As Christians, we need to accept the fact that we are not of this world, that our citizenship, inheritance, and future is in heaven with Jesus. There are millions of people who don't know Jesus yet and have no hope whatsoever and they're looking for an example, somebody they can look to as a model saying, is there any way, is there a way to live? 
These folks who have no hope, hell is their default destination, which is why God is asking each of us to be a holy, committed witness for Him so those who are lost can receive the forgiveness of sins and the gift of eternal life before it's too late. Would you bow your heads with me in prayer? With our heads bowed and our eyes closed, I just, I don't want this opportunity to pass because there may be someone here and you don't know Jesus as your personal Savior right now. You, you've never asked Christ to forgive you, to save you, to come into your heart and life, to be your Savior and Lord. And I really want to be able to lead you in a prayer of commitment right now, if that would be you. Eternity is, is, is critical. We will all spend eternity somewhere. And it would be a tragedy if someone here who doesn't know Jesus were to leave this place and not have the opportunity to change their destiny from hell to heaven. God says whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And so I want to lead us all in a prayer of commitment. And for those who do know Jesus, I'm going to invite you to pray this prayer with me because it's a prayer of recommitment, a commitment to holiness, a commitment to be a disciple, a follower of Christ, to be willing to lay down our lives and pay the price should Jesus ask us to do that. So would you join me in this prayer saying, Dear Jesus, I believe you are the Son of God. I believe you died on the cross and rose from the dead so I could be forgiven. Lord, I ask you to forgive me today because I have sinned. Please come into my heart and be the Savior and Lord of my life. Today, Jesus, I enthrone you in my heart and life as Lord and King. Use me according to your will. In Jesus' name. You can contact the church office Tuesday through Thursday from 9 to 5 and Fridays from 9 to 3 at 503-266-4444. Please visit us on the web anytime at canbefoursquare.com. Pastor Ron and others on New Life staff, along with occasional guest speakers, trust that the Holy Spirit will use the message to teach you, encourage you, and give you hope.